Hi, I'm Joe Otis, Chief Marketing Officer of Wanna Brands, one of the largest edibles companies in the country. As we've talked about in the first episode, we will use this podcast to dissect what's going on in Pennsylvania with legalization efforts that uh, the senator is really taking the lead on and, and driving forward. And today's uh, discussion is going to be all about SB now 1028, what was SB 107. So uh, welcome, uh, Senator, and uh, excited to have you on today to talk about this current event type news. Well, great book. Uh, one, welcome back. Good to be talking with you today on Cannabis Radio. And I am excited to talk about the d bill. It's super important to a ton of people. So, Senator, I, I agree, 100% important to a lot of people, right? And and I think what would be helpful to, is to set a baseline. So tell us exactly kind of what's going on with this bill. Like, what what is the, the, the nuts and bolts of it that people should know about? Well, first of all, decriminalization and legalization are not the same thing. Decriminalization is basically moving cannabis from being recreational use of cannabis from being a serious criminal offense to, and in most cases, a summary offense. It therefore stops folks from going out when they say ID people having to go to jail time. So this bill would amend the Controlled Substances, a Drug, a Device, a Cosmetic Act. And therefore, if you're possessing less than 30 grams, which is not object for public or for personal use, then you're not going to get a criminal, you're not going to get a big time criminal fe- felony conviction. And uh, municipalities and some local jurisdictions have done it Philly, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, Rari, Pennsylvania. And the idea is that we don't need to be filling our jails with people who haven't done anything other than use cannabis for personal use. So that's a, a great jumping off point for one of the first questions I really want to talk about. So we know that historically, these laws in many states and cities uh, have disproportionately affected people of color. Right? It was a way in some states even to generate revenue for the state by arresting people and putting it into the judicial system. So two questions here. One, how much effort here is really to reverse that process or if that did not exist in Pennsylvania as it did in other states, which- Well, well it definitely did exist in Pennsylvania, so I don't have to worry about that. Uh, Pennsylvania- Black and brown folks were four to five times more likely to get a cannabis conviction, even though cannabis usage amongst white folks, black folks, and everybody is, rel- is relatively the same. The other thing that we don't keep, you know, one is, you know, poor white folks are much more likely to have a law enforcement encounter than, than wealthy ones. And we know it anecdotally. If you're walking through a rich neighborhood or well, upper middle class neighborhoods building a joint, there aren't cops just stopping you. You're in a poor white community, much more likely to happen. We keep data on racial stuff, not data on economics, but it's something that rich folks can deal with impunity. Then the reason that black and brown folks, even poor white folks, shouldn't be able to do it too. Great point. And I think that information doesn't always register for people when they think about decriminalization or legalization is exactly that, that social impact. Surely for the people that have been impacted, it, it resonates, but but may, for many, it doesn't. They don't recognize that disparity, right? So given that it was the case in Pennsylvania, when you make a major shift like this, and, and I'm going to get kind of revenue-oriented for a second here, states obviously build models for their budgets based on inputs and outputs, right? Just just as any business does. So major shifts like this and changes, does it affect, is that where people are resistant to it on the legislative side because it affects budgets or might affect uh, downstream well, impact to things they're funding? It changes budgets, certainly, but in, in many respects, we're saving money because we warehouse tons and tons of people in a state correctional institutions, we won't have to. Now, look, there are some municipalities, uh, some local governments where prisons are their entire economy. 
If your economy is based around prison, cannabis decriminalization and legalization are reduced the your, your economy. But I just think if that's the case, we need to take some of those monies and reinvest it in giving those trees a real economy, not just watching people sit in jail who really haven't done anything, don't pose a threat to society. So yeah, there are some municipalities, but at the state level, it's going to save us money, not cost us money. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, part of the reason why I was asking that question is, I wonder, as you have brought this bill forward, and you've done that in conjunction with a Republican senator, Cameron Bartolotta. Bartolotta, thank you. What was the resistance that you met? Right. So in other words, in the process of bringing forward a bill, you obviously try to generate some level of interest. Uh, partnership with both both sides of the uh, of the political aisle. So what, what resistance did you meet with? The biggest resistance is just people not understanding the issue. One, they don't understand cannabis. Uh, they haven't paid a lot of attention to it. They don't know the difference between legalization and decriminalization. Believe it or not, when we first started talking about this, there were still people held up one end. Nixon era reefer madness video thought that- Oh, I believe it. Who had all these crazy ideas that Somehow cannabis was going to drive you insane and start tagging people. Sir, on its face, but having educated people about, you know, why that movie and video are so just factually inaccurate. And then some of the benefits around saving money, around disparate impact on uh, people of color and even poor white folks. When you start explaining what it does, then I think the support has grown. But there were just people who were just really not informed because not everybody, not every legislator wakes up thinking about this issue. That's why we have to do some work to get them informed. So still to this day, you're meeting that just base level mixing error resistance of like, oh, it's it's weed. It should be illegal. Absolutely. There are still people who just say, it's weed. It's a drug. I even had one member say, you don't know how many people die from nar- from overdoses of narcotics. I'm like, uh, cannabis is not a narcotic. Cannabis is completely different. But they lump it together. So they'll hear about heroin, opioid deaths from overdose, and then they'll apply that to cannabis. Now, for people who know anything about the science behind it, it's literally absurd. But there are a lot of people that drugs is drugs. And these are the, particularly some of my colleagues who came around are of an older generation than me. It's sort of like drugs is drugs and you know, just say no. But it's interesting, the older generation is also the hippie generation that really started this movement. Out. And there's such a, a dichotomy in the uh, generation. That's, I'm, I'll be 50. It's, that's my parents' generation. Some people know so much about it, and some people are completely ignorant. Uh, but for many folks who just wanted to do the right thing and were told this was the wrong thing, they just don't even have a baseline set of information. And we got to educate those people. In regards to that education, folks, how does that process work for you? Because you, these are your colleagues, right? These are people in, in Congress yeah, that's to educate. Is it hand-to-hand combat was what I call it, like, you know, well, mostly, conversations. Mostly hand-to-hand combat. Well, we can send, because legislators get tons of information, emails, briefing documents, and, and you can't read it all. Uh, so what do you read for? You prepare, if I prepare a meeting with them to talk to a colleague, in that meeting, I can educate people. And often at that point, people will prepare for the meeting with me, and then at the meeting, Force it or urge them to read the materials because they don't want to be sitting and talking to a colleague and not understand any of what we're talking about. So, a lot of this is really just sitting and talking. And sometimes it's formal meetings and sometimes it's informal conversations. Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? We're sitting there waiting for 
um, the, the prayer come down or, or some or some some one committee's meeting and wait for another to get into the room or something like that. Or the Senate's off and waiting for the House. And then we sit there and we'll, and you just talk to people because you're sitting together sort of in a space where they don't want us to go anywhere because we need to do something. And said, hey, let me talk to you about Senate Bill 1028, deals with decriminalization of cannabis. And I'm like, you know, I was thinking about it, man. I don't know how you guys could be supporting that because we got all these opioid abducts. I was like, no, no, no. You know, places where cannabis is legalized, it goes down. You know, cannabis isn't, a, isn't an opioid. What is it, a narcotic? No, it's not a narcotic either. It was like, well, what is it? And he said, well, let me explain how, what, how it actually works. And it's totally different. You know, people, there's, there, are, there are virtually no cases of anyone ever overdosing on cannabis. And when you start explaining some of this stuff, the people come around, oh, wow, that's really, did you know that, does it seem fair that a black or brown young person or even a poor white young person more likely to get four to five times more likely in some cases to get have a cannabis encounter than than a, a wealthy white person walking through a real class neighborhood? That doesn't seem fair. And when you start explaining that, then they'll, people will get it. And then you can get, and then slowly you bring them in and they say, you know, watch, take a, you know, people usually say, you know, Senator, I want to take a second look at that bill. Let me read through that information. I think you sent me some briefing materials. I'm like, I'm going to take a look at it as my staff to look at it. I'm going to consider getting on their bill. And that's really what you have to do. And then they'll consider. And then and then once they get there intellectually, then they have, there's a whole political vetting process because some of them will say, you know what, I'm there now. I don't know if my constituents are there. And then and then that's when you start talking about polling data. That 75, I think 77% of Republicans support cannabis legalization and certainly some more than that support decriminalization over 80% of Democrats. I'm like, I tell people, how many things can you get over three quarters of Republicans and Democrats to agree on? Cannabis is one of those things. And so when they start looking at those numbers, they realize, you know what, this maybe this isn't bad politically. And sometimes they'll even say, you know what, this is good politically. It's good policy. It's good politics. And I think it's always good when the public can see us working together. Pennsylvania, for those who don't know, we have a Republican-controlled state Senate, a Democratic-controlled uh, state House, a Democratic governor, a, a Democratic attorney general, but a Republican auditor general and a Republican treasurer. Uh, we are the quintessential divided government state. I think we're probably the most evenly divided government state in the uh, country. And even in, in the House, where we have a Democratic majority, it's only a one-vote majority. In the Senate, we have a Republican majority. It's only a three-vote majority. So... Our legislature is pretty evenly divided. Our executive branch of state government is pretty evenly divided. And so we have to work together for getting anything done. That's a pretty interesting fact, right? I mean, it's, it's a model for what we all, I think, wish our federal government could be like. It is not currently, but there's there's so much to be learned there. But you, you mentioned something that was actually a question I was going to get to, which is this idea of the bipartisan nature of cannabis. And that's been discussed many times. You see the polling numbers nationally, people in favor of legalization, et cetera. So in your experience doing this education process, have you seen that divide as well? I mean, I think in our heads, there's still a, a general sense like, oh, Republicans not as in favor, Democrats more in favor, knowing that the polling doesn't necessarily show that to be true. What, what's so, your experience? I think that's true of, of legislators. Their Democratic legislators are a little bit more leaning, our Republicans are, but it's not universal. First of all, when you talk to regular people, Democrats and Republicans almost equally support cannabis, and it's both overwhelmingly. When you start talking to legislators, I think Republican legislators have just been a little slower to to get into the game. But I remind people when I first got 
supporting cannabis. There were only two Democrats in the Senate that supported it, and I was counting me as one, and there were no Republicans. And so now we move to a place where there are a number of Republicans and a number of Democrats. It's pretty standard issue for Democrats to support it, but there are still some that oppose. Uh, it is Republicans privately, Republican legislators are are, are mostly saying this is going to happen, and let's just figure out how we get it right. I think some of it is, you know, they're the conservative party, so they're a little bit more conservative in their approach. And we're the progressive party, so we push more for progress. But in the end, in Pennsylvania, a lot of legislators in the middle, they're progressive, Democrats are progressive, and Pennsylvania aren't that progressive. And Republicans, the average Republican in Pennsylvania is not as conservative as some other places. Uh, we have our extremes, but I think we have a good chance of getting this through. It's, I, I think um, in Pennsylvania, we said we're, we're rare to be first, but but often first to get it right. Good motto. I like that. Actually, Juana is uh, similar to that as well. So it just fascinates me that it can pull so high across both parties, and yet we're still pushing. It's still a scene. Yeah. It's still, you know, anything else that pulled as high as this, you would think people would be like, oh, my constituents want it. I'm on it, right? Yeah. Anything else that pulled this high? It would be done as it would be done unanimously, and it wouldn't even, and we wouldn't even get any credit in the press because they're saying like, so we get they get something pulling that high. It's like fixing I ninety five. Like, no, we could leave it broken, but we, we wouldn't do that. It's sort of the cannabis is getting to that point where people are like, dude, why why haven't you done this already? Yeah, I hope so. I hope those voices get louder. But let's talk a little bit about the the process, right? So we've talked about getting that that partisanship and, and bringing people on board with it. But what's the next step here? How do we move this forward? And I'm talking about literally like the old, uh, how does a bill work? You know, the just a bill on Capitol Hill. Like what's the- Absolutely. Well, the first thing is we got a bill. It's been introduced. We have Republican and Democratic co-sponsors. So that's, that's a good thing. That's particularly Pennsylvania. So now it's got to go to a hearing. It's got to get assigned to a committee. Then it's got to have, and then we got to have a public hearing about it. And, and the public hearing is just a chance for people to say, "Look, I think this is the greatest thing ever." Or people to say, "I think this is the second greatest thing ever." Because we're not going to even, even in our fictitious hearing, we're not going to have anybody say it. it's bad. In all seriousness, it's a chance for a public to have their say. Uh, then we'll have a committee meeting. Voted out of committee, it goes to the floor. When it gets to the floor of Pennsylvania, it's going to be reassigned to appropriations committee. Because it's got to go through appropriations committee because all these things either generate revenue or cost revenue. It'll be assigned a fiscal note, and then we will vote it out of committee. It gets out of committee. It goes to the it goes to the floor. Uh, the full Senate will vote on it. Then the Senate says, "Hey, we're doing this." Then we send it over to the House, and it sort of rinse and repeat. The House will send it to a committee. They'll have hearings. The Senate, the House, they'll send it to the floor. It'll get reassigned appropriations. Ruled out appropriations there, and then back to the House floor. And if it's if there are no amendments, then it go they get to half the House and goes to the governor's desk. If there are amendments, then it got to go back to the Senate for concurrence. But on the second time back, we don't have to send it through committee. It goes straight to the floor. It can it can go straight to the floor where we can vote on it on concurrence. And so that's the basic uh, process. A lot of mechanics. Well, we need to rally people usually at each stage of the way, but. That's the web process for each and every bill. That's a lot, right? That is, that there are a lot. It's every bill, though. <laughs> in which every bill understood, you know, and oftentimes, you know, I've been, I've been close to this process and oftentimes you hear, oh, it didn't make out of committee or 
I got killed on the floor, or you know, there's there's various steps that maybe can you know uh, damage the bill or significantly amend it. What's your biggest concern in this process as well, of today? That you- every bill's got six, that six votes. Once in the original committee, once in the appropriations committee, once on the floor to set it. It's got to happen in the House. Once in the House original committee, once in the House appropriations committee, and once on the floor of the House. And then if it, there are amendments, it can get ping pong back and forth. And usually it gets amended at least once. So it goes back to the other chamber. So you look at seven votes before it goes to the governor's desk. And that's just a normal process, but that's a lot. And if we don't get it done within a two-year period, then we have to start all over again because every bill, like this was 107, it became 10, 1028 in December of next year. 1028 will die if it doesn't get passed in the law, and we'll have to reintroduce it, and then we'll start all over again. And so I just like to see us push through, get those steps done before Bill dies. And I, there's plenty of time to do it, but it has to be a priority. Uh, it certainly is a priority for the people of Pennsylvania. We just need to make sure it's a priority for the legislature. I like to carry cannabis with me. What you know? What date should I be thinking about to, to it, this? Well, this all bills will die November thirtieth of twenty twenty four if we don't get them done. November, okay. So that's kind of the target, which is you know a lot of time between here and then, right? To your point about keeping the enthusiasm and the momentum for the bill. So then, tell me, how does this bill dovetail affect influence the the broader adult use legalization work that you've been doing? Well, look, I think it's important because a lot of people think it's an incremental step. Once we've had decriminalization statewide, uh, then we've put ourselves in a place where we won't have folks, well, there won't be, I think some of the stigma that, oh my God, Rafer again, and I keep, I hate to bring it up, but it literally is is referenced by legislators over and over again. The Nixon era reefer madness, it will rebuke that people will see, look, look, the world has not ended in my community and gone to decrim. Now let's talk about how we can generate revenue. Now let's talk about how people shouldn't be fined at all. We can actually, I let now let's talk about labeling. Let's talk about those kinds of things, which happen with legalization, but not decriminalization. There are over 20,000 adults arrested for marijuana violations in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That's just as crazy. Even if they don't ultimately get to jail time, there's still time of processing them. The average person is going to spend at a minimum if you get taken in, it can be 36 to 48 hours just getting processed. Why you got to lose a day getting processed just to be released? So um, there are, it doesn't make sense. So I think moving to decriminalization is a huge step in the right direction. Legalization though, legalization is because then we can have label. Then you can know the strength of a product. Then there can be adequate testing. Then we it would, the ability to keep it out of the hands of minors is much greater with legalization because then licensed stores will have an incentive not to sell it to people who aren't of age and you know, a card folks. A legalization allows us to make to look at to or to tax it and drive revenue out. And then that revenue can be reinvested at things we need for our communities. There's so much more that happens with legalization. And so but decriminalization for many people is an important intermediate step. Well, so that's kind of part of why I was asking, right? So if you look at decriminalization as a necessary step in the process, does that then delay potential legalization efforts because people are going to say, well, we, we just decrimmed. We took a step in the right direction. Let's let's tackle the legalization stuff down the road. I think in Pennsylvania, every time we take an incremental step, we move ourselves closer to the ultimate goal. Where the culture of the legislature of Pennsylvania, the culture of the Commonwealth is incrementalism. So I think taking an incremental step 
moves us closer. There could be places, and I won't speak for every state, where doing a decrim bill will sort of take the uh, energy out of the, out of it. But what I find is that in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, when we do something and we get a legislative win, that encourages people to hey, we can get some, we get some more, and it says to legislators. The legislator can say, "Well, now I did this, and it, it didn't work out that bad. I didn't get, I didn't get beat up. Now let me try to do this next thing." And so, I think decriminalization will be an important step towards legalization. So, I'm, I think it will in the Pennsylvania, it will have the expediting legalization, but I can see how some places it could work the other way around. Gotcha. Okay. Um, you know, we we were talking a little bit about reefer madness, that whole concept, and, and it occurred to me as I was researching the bill and some of the media coverage uh, that your office shared with me. And I was looking at the images, the video content, and it's, you know, people with a metal pipe and, and a lighter. And they're, they're kind of salacious images that I think reinforce some of what you're what you're talking about from a reefer madness standpoint, because particularly for someone who's not a cannabis consumer, those images can feel like, can kind of feel uncomfortable. So knowing that the media plays such a large role right now in influencing perception, whether that's you know, uh, through social media or through traditional media channels. How does the media treat this right now in Pennsylvania? What's been the influence that they've had in the discussion? Well, look, we have five uh, different television media markets and and dozens and dozens of periodicals. So I guess it depends on which outlet. But what I would say overall, I think the press has been mildly positive. I don't think they've been overwhelmingly enthusiastic, but mildly positive. I think there are things like the Chief Police Association have come out in favor of decriminalization. That's not a group that people would have traditionally thought of as big for decriminalization. They don't believe it's an effective use of police resources. And I think some of those groups, but I think the press has been, it's been fine, but they try to be balanced. And there are efforts to be balanced that they give voice to sort of the reefer madness folks. And that's just silly. That's sort of like if I say, look, uh, let's talk about boats. And I start talking about the engineering of how to build a boat. And you say, well, I think uh, boats should be made out of paper because paper boats are going to be best. I made one when I was six years old. I floated it. And it worked okay for about 15 minutes. But that's not a serious conversation if we're talking about moving cargo across the Atlantic Ocean. But when they treat it just because two people have ideas and are expressing it and they're different, like they're both they both have both have equal merit, I think that confuses the public sometimes. I think the media gives too much credence and is too deferential and tries too hard to be fair to the reefer madness community. And even though most reporters know it's ridiculous, they gotta be okay with saying, look, on everything there's not two equal positions. One position can be right, and one position can be stupid. And the reefer madness position is a stupid one. Now, look, for people that say we need to be thoughtful about how we do legalization, what's the appropriate tax structure, how we keep out the kid, hands of kids, those are reasonable conversations. But the reefer madness people that are prepared comparing cannabis to heroin, uh, man, that just doesn't make much sense. Well, that's an interesting point you make. And by the way, I love the boat analogy. That was a good one. There are groups in Colorado, for example, that are extremely well-funded have visibility, have political influence, lobbyists that are at the Capitol here in Colorado that are trying to impact, initially it was legalization itself, but now every year new bills come up, they try to float bills that are going to be detrimental to the legalization movement here in Colorado. Do you have similar well-organized, well-funded groups that are the anti-cannabis side of this, You know, kind of referred to reefer madness, but is it 
broader than that? Is it, uh, or is it just a handful of people that are just vocal? I think there is a segment of our electorate, mostly Republicans, but a few Democrats, who just have never come out of the reefer madness era. I don't think anyone has to lobby and pay them to be there now. I just think they're there because psychologically, that's where they are. Because part of the term was sort of throwbacks from a different era where that's where most of America was. I've heard of the lobbyists and coming in, maybe they're because we haven't gotten to that point where there's so much resistance without them spending money. Probably. They're, uh, they haven't really engaged. Right now, I think for us, it's mostly just people who literally remember Nancy Reagan said, this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs. And she didn't say which drug and she showed the A crying and they just think, hey, that's what this is about. We don't want to fry people's brains with cannabis. And they'll say, you know what? I'm against drugs because I've had, I watched people OD or I watched sudden shootouts over it. I'm like, people are not getting a shootouts over weed. It's just not happening. Yeah. And so I don't think they understand that we still took their place. Gotcha. There's two sides to decriminalization. There's the people in the future who won't be incarcerated for these for these supposed crimes. There's also people that are serving time currently, right? So there's the expungement side of this. What language, if any, is in the bill will be proposed? How would you treat expungement in relation to decriminalization? We do have language in our, our legalization bill around expungement. We don't really deal with it in the decrim bill because it would still technically be a, a crime, it'd just be a summary offense, so it wouldn't be. But in the legalization bill, we allow automatic sealing of everyone's record, and we allow the opportunity for everyone to get the record expunged for any cannabis crimes that were ever committed in Pennsylvania. And the reason for that is, the reason we say sealed, because sealed is an administrative action that we can, as General Assembly order, to expunge is a judicial action. What we've been told is it would violate separation of powers if you didn't have to go to a court to get the record expunged. In the legalization bill, the recreational bill, new legalization bill, we deal with both sealing and the expunging of records. But in the deep front bill, we really don't deal with what you'd have to do to get your record expunged. Gotcha. Well, this would be super helpful, I think, for the listeners, and I think to understand the nuts and bolts, how this works what the process looks like moving forward. My guess is that there will be updates along the way as we do future episodes, and we'll probably come back to this and, and maybe find out how it's progressing. And ultimately, hopefully, it passes. I think it's a step in the right direction. Anything else you want you know, folks who are listening to, to kind of know about this uh, bill before we kind of wrap things up? Well, look, I think we want people to know that 1020 of the T-Curve bill is bipartisan. We need it to be bicameral. We need to get out of the House and the Senate. We need folks to know that guess what? The vast majority of Republicans and Democrats, over three quarters of both, support uh, decriminalization. And in fact, most of them support legalization too. We need folks to know that there are 20,000 Pennsylvanians that are still getting arrested for cannabis. And we need those folks. That's a waste of taxpayer resources. We could use that money for better things, whether you believe in tax cuts or putting it towards education or just other crime prevention programs. There are so much better uses for that money we're spending on on the whole criminal justice system, even processing people if they don't go to jail. And finally, there are people whose lives are impacted that can have better or more robust careers, but they're not having them because they got a cannabis conviction, which is still just listed as a drug offense. So you have people saying, I don't want to hire this person because I think they have a drug issue. And the reality is this person doesn't have an addiction issue. Simply, 
abused cannabis and got convicted under antiquated laws. We need that the per the public already psychologically draws a massive distinction between people who use cannabis versus people who shoot up heroin or slow crack or or, or snort coke. They're not the same things. And what we need to do this this bill recognizes that stars draw tries to start drawing the distinction. It's a really important incremental step and we need to advance it. Right. Well, thank you, Senator. I appreciate it. This has been Planting Seeds with Senator Street of Pennsylvania. And uh, thank you to Kidabs Radio for hosting this and uh, look forward to talking to you again next time.